Hey, this is Nate with Purity for Life. So, when a professing Christian man finally gets sick of being addicted, what should he do? I think there's a lot of people who immediately go to the internet, self-help gurus, or psychology, and try to figure out what the real problem is. And, hey, you can find a lot of interesting information about addiction in all of those places, and everyone is going to confidently offer their perspective on what it takes to get free. But the sad fact is, a lot of what is portrayed as truth these days is nothing more than a myth. Here's a really common one. Masturbation? That's not a sin. There are many who believe that that's not a sin. Even some pastors may teach that sort of thing. But I can tell you this. I've been in addictions counseling for over 20 years, and in my ministry experiences, I can assure you that just like cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, those things are the gateways to harder drug use and abuse, masturbation is a gateway to other forms of sexual sin. In today's episode, we'll look at some common myths about sexual sin. This is Purity for Life. Here we go. Okay, so joining me now in the studio is Ed Book, the Vice President of Counseling Programs here at Pure Life. Pastor Ed, so great to have you in the studio today. Um, So what we want to focus on today are common myths that Christian men or women believe about sexual sin. And I think that if you were to survey graduates of our residential program and ask them, hey, before you came to Pure Life, were there things that you believed about sexual sin that turned out to be a myth? You know, like you believed this thing that was supposedly truth, but once you really started immersing yourself in biblical teaching, suddenly the lights come on. It's like, whoa, okay, that thing that I believed, that wasn't true at all. I think a lot of our grads would say, yep. Definitely, I believed some myths. So I was hoping that we could talk today about myths that Christians believe about sexual addiction. I wonder if you'd mind exploring a few of those with me. I'd be happy to do that because you're very, uh, it's very true what you just said that uh, the men that come here coming out of church backgrounds, but there are a lot of myths that are embedded in their thinking. Okay, great. So first, let's talk about the problem of sexual sin itself. Um, I think one of the myths that people believe is that, you know what, nobody struggles with that in my church. Um, What would you say to those folks? Yeah, it's definitely getting, I think, harder and harder to maintain that illusion that sexual sin is not a problem in the church today. Uh, But there probably still are those who are just oblivious to it or in denial uh, over that situation. Because, you know, study after study is getting done now. Surveys, polls are being done on a regular basis by people like the Barna Group, Focus on the Family, you know, qualified organizations to really look into these things. And they consistently are churning out numbers that tell us 50% of the men in a congregation are addicted to pornography. 20% of the women in a congregation are addicted to pornography. Um focus on the family, did a poll that said 47% of families say that porn is a problem in their home. 
And none of this should be really shocking because one of the stats uh, that I saw recently was that 18% of pastors are addicted to pornography. And I'm using the word addicted here, Brooks. It's not just that these people are occasionally consuming something that they shouldn't. (laughs) These are uh, men, women who are compulsively addicted to pornography and other forms of sexual sin. And uh, it's a huge problem in the church. But you know what always stands out to me hand in hand when I see these statistics is I've read the, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, and two of them specifically mention sexual sin as an issue in the church. And so what that tells me is that sexual sin in the church has been a problem, is a problem, and is going to continue to be a problem even as we go through the very end times. Okay, so let's zoom in a little bit, and now let's talk to individuals in the church who are saying that sexual sin is just, it's impossible to overcome. Now, maybe they feel that way about someone that they love, or maybe they feel that about their own lives. What would you say to that so-called myth? Yeah, that is definitely a very common thought, uh, especially by those really who are in sexual sin, because they've come to that place where, you know, they've tried some things, uh, some, some quick fixes to get out of it, uh, undoubtedly, at least before they come to Pure Life Ministries, I think that's universally uh, been the case. But they are bound up in this hopelessness, and because of that, this lie just you know takes deep root in in them that sexual sin is somehow impossible to overcome. And really, uh, you know, what stands out to me is just a, a passage of scripture, even First Corinthians six, uh, beginning in verse nine where Paul writes, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, and he goes on to name some other people, thieves, covetous people, drunkards, and so on. He says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, but here's the great news. Here's the next phrase, and such were some of you. Paul is clearly saying that sexual sin can be overcome. Some of you were brought out of that. He goes on, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's the hope that I would want to give anyone who falls for that lie from the enemy that sexual sin cannot possibly be overcome. And I'm telling you, when you work here at Pure Life Ministries, there's no doubt that sexual sin can be overcome because we see it on a regular basis. We're surrounded by stories of victory Every employee here has that as a personal testimony, even, that they have come out of sexual sin. And and we deal with, uh, I think it's over 500 men and women a year now in our various counseling services. And all of them, uh, the vast majority of them, are going to go on to live a life free from their sexual sin. Okay, I want to move on to the fact that people have kind of like a classification system in their mind when they think about sexual sins. Some of them, very, very serious. Others, okay, definitely serious. And then sometimes, some people would look at certain sexual sins and just say, you know what, I I don't even think that's a sin. Like, for instance, masturbation, that's a big one. How would you respond to someone who says, masturbation, don't even worry about it? Sure. Well, let's first go back to the verse I just quoted out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, where Paul was writing and saying that these various ones will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, he listed right there among them 
fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, and sodomites. And, you know, that pretty well covers a broad list of sexual sinners right there. So I suppose, you know, the other issue that isn't on that list that really um, most people latch on to is masturbation. When it comes to, to this issue of masturbation, there are many who believe that that's not a sin. Even some pastors may teach that sort of thing, uh, that masturbation is not a sin. But I can tell you this, uh, I've been in addictions counseling for over 20 years, and in my ministry experiences, I can assure you that just like cigarettes, alcohol, marijuana, those things are the gateways to harder drug use and abuse, masturbation is a gateway to other forms of sexual sin. And sin always begins in the heart. So when Jesus addressed sexual sin, and he did, that's exactly what he pointed to. You remember the passage in Matthew uh, in the Sermon on the Mount? He said that if a man looks at someone lustfully, he's committing adultery in his heart. And so whether I look at someone literally, see them walk by or drive by or something, and, and I'm looking at them, or whether it's simply happening in my mind's eye while I'm masturbating, I'm still committing sin, committing the sin of adultery in my heart. And when I fantasize and masturbate, that's what's going on. And then Jesus went on to say shortly after that, that it's from within, out of the heart of men that proceed evil thoughts or fantasies, you might say, adulteries, fornications, and so on. Uh, Jesus is telling us that those more offensive, deeper forms of sexual sin are actually rooted in our heart. And they arise out of our heart. So when masturbation is corrupting our heart, it's feeding into those other forms of sin that will eventually flow and follow out of that same heart. And I guess, you know, what I find in our counseling is that there are a lot of men who want to hold on to that sin, uh, masturbation, and make it some kind of a pet sin almost that, that they don't have to give up. They'll give up a lot of other things, but not that one. And they'll continue to struggle with that one for a little while. And that's why in his book, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry, Steve Gallagher devotes an entire chapter to this topic of masturbation because it is one of those myths that people have held on to, that it's not really a sin. And he addresses that pretty thoroughly in the book because the bottom line to all of this is that masturbation, some people use the term self-gratification. I've seen more and more recently people are even just calling it self-sex. And all of those terms, whichever one you choose, they're pointing to it and saying the root of it is selfishness. I'm literally having sex with myself if I'm engaged in masturbation. And so if you look at the whole of Scripture, the full teaching out of the Bible— there is no way you can defend such a selfish behavior as compatible with your Christianity. Yeah, I really appreciate just how you're bringing home the seriousness of the problem of sexual sin, because I think that that can be very lacking with certain people who really need to see the seriousness of it. Um, let's talk about something that's sort of related to that. I think that some people believe that as long as they keep their behaviors within a certain, I don't really even know how to say it exactly, like within a certain range, that that's good enough. Like, hey, as long as I contain my sin, 
as long as I keep it from progressing and just don't let it get any worse, then I'm going to be okay. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that that's a lie, <laughs> that your sexual sin, my sexual sin, will not stay contained very well at all. And you're talking now to someone who has spent a number of years, probably close to 10 years, with a secret sexual sin habit of masturbation and fantasy and lust. But all that did was kept the door wide open so that eventually I was just, in a sense, ripe for the picking. And, and when a opportunity came along for me to engage in an adulterous affair, that's exactly what I did because I had kept that door open all along thinking that I was just giving over in a certain way uh, but not going that far, not going into adultery, that somehow I could contain that and would never cross those lines. And, and that phrase right there, you know, I'll never cross that line or some version of that is a common uh, thought that people in sexual sin hold on to and what they end up realizing is that the circumstances do arise, will arise, that causes them to cross lines they never thought they would cross. And this whole lie that we can contain our sexual sin, it's based on the notion that our lust can somehow actually be satisfied, but that is never what happens with lust. Lust can never be satisfied. We continually lust for more, and over time, in fact, we need more frequent engagement with our sin. If it's some form of sexual sin, looking at pornography on the computer, for example, you know, instead of just once a month, now I'm at once a week, and then I'm at once a day, and then I'm, you know, at spending hours a day on the computer looking at my pornography. That's the progression in terms of quantity, but it's even worse than that because it also requires an increase in the potency of what we're engaging in so that uh, we move from one form of sin or even pornography to other types of pornography that involve some sort of fetish or perversion or something else. It takes greater and greater quantities of more and more potent forms of our sin to mm -hmm. try and even temporarily satisfy mm. that uh, lust in us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that we see in Solomon's life. If you uh, just read the book of Ecclesiastes, he certainly didn't ever seem to find a bottom to his desire for more, right? Um, okay, let's look at another myth that people sometimes have with dealing with sexual sin, and that is that confession itself has the power to deliver me from sexual sin. Now, okay, Confession is definitely in the Bible, and it is a very important part of dealing with sexual sin. And maybe some of our listeners can relate to this, that sometimes a person is very diligent to confess their sins, but they just keep going back after confession to sin. So something is definitely missing there. What would you say to someone who might just be confessing sin, but not finding freedom? Yes, again, this is one of the common things that... Uh people get caught up in and it leads them into a cycle of hopelessness rather than actual growth out of their sin. And we, we see this a lot from the men who come into our residential program. Even they've been going for years to altar calls, to uh, accountability partners, to support groups and repeatedly confessing their sin, but their addiction hasn't diminished even in the slightest as they've gone through that cycle and that's because confession must be coupled with repentance. 
that's the biblical picture that we see. Confession can't stand alone. It needs to be coupled with repentance. And that repentance really literally must mean a turning away from my sin. So in biblical counseling, we often speak in terms of putting off the old sinful way, the sexual sin, and putting on some new godly behavior in its place. And that's what needs to be coupled with the confession. So a lifestyle of sexual sin needs to become a sanctified life and someone who learns what it means to walk in the Spirit. Because if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the promise we have in Scripture. Okay, okay, that's great. So what we need to see as a follow-up to confession is true repentance. Can you further define what real repentance would look like in somebody's life? Well, I can give you a few things, uh, I suppose, off the top of my head. I think I would say that repentance, uh, maybe an obvious place to start is just taking the verse Romans thirteen fourteen to make no provision for my flesh. So I need to cut off those things that have been feeding my flesh or my sexual sin. And uh, frequently, if the sin is something sexual, frequently that's going to look like uh, getting rid of my internet access or at the very least installing some sort of uh, adequate filtering for that connection. I may need to think about my television and my viewing habits on there, the movies that I have, the catalogs that I have in my house, anything that I've brought in the front door that really can be used to stir my flesh and, and get me into a sensual mindset. I need to cleanse my house of those things. I need to do a major house cleaning and get rid of that stuff. That would be an example of putting my repentance in action, and that would be part of that putting off that I was talking about earlier. But hand in hand with that then, you've got to have something that replaces these things in our lives. So Biblically, we want to put on habits of daily prayer time and reading the Bible, and if I'm married and have children, family time, uh, things like that. Uh, I definitely would need to get plugged into a church, and not just any church, but a church where I'm getting solid biblical teaching and where I'm able to engage in meaningful fellowship with other Mm -hmm. growing believers. Mm. Okay, thank you so much. That really helps flesh things out a little bit more, just uh, practically speaking. Okay, one more myth that I want to address in regards to dealing with sexual sin in somebody's life, and that is the profession of faith. And I think the myth here is that a profession of faith is just enough for someone to feel comfortable about their walk with God, even when they're not seeing victory yet in sexual sin. A lot of people who come to us, that's kind of their situation. Like, they've been a professing Christian for years, and they still haven't seen any change. So what would you say to someone who feels satisfied in just making a profession of faith and saying, that's enough? Well, I'm going to say, no, it's not enough, because I believe that's what the Bible teaches us, that having a profession of faith is, is a beginning. It's a first step. But there are examples, many examples, I think, in Scripture of people who started well but did not finish well. And I even think of Paul's uh, second missionary journey in particular. He undertook that journey because it was on his heart to go back and visit the churches he had founded and see how the people were doing. He was very concerned that their profession of faith hadn't somehow withered away in the face of whatever opposition might have come along behind him, 
he wanted to go back and encourage them in the faith and help mature and grow their faith. He wrote to the Thessalonians that he wanted to supply what was lacking in their faith and longed to see them so that he could impart that to them. And I think Peter spells all this out pretty well uh, at the beginning of his second epistle when he says plainly that we must add to our faith. And he goes on to list a number of things. He says, to add to our faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control we add perseverance, to perseverance we must add godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. And then at the pinnacle of all of that there's love, that agape love that God's really after. But we have to add those things to our faith. Faith was just the first step, and Mm. Peter even says that we need to be diligent about that. This is a lifelong journey of spiritual growth that we've undertaken, Mm. and faith and a profession of faith was just the beginning. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in, Pastor Ed. I really appreciate it. I'm just reminded that Jesus said that if you abide in my words, then you're really my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That, I think, is the point of all this, is that myths keep people in sexual sin because they don't have the power that truth has. Truth has the power to set people truly free. And so I'm really grateful that you came in and offered some spiritual clarity on some of these myths that are keeping people locked in sexual sin. Um, just right before we close, is there is there any parting words that you would offer to somebody who's listening? I guess I would uh, hope that the listeners fully understand that they're is a way out. There is hope. This ministry has been around for over 30 years for exactly that reason, so that men can find a way out and women can find a way out of their addiction. They don't need to stay in that cycle of despair. I hope that you were really helped by what Pastor Ed shared and the truths that he was bringing out from God's Word. Um, Before we go, we wanted to share with you the story of Jeff, a graduate of our residential program. I grew up in a loving family, yet Christ was not the head of our home during the early years of my life. My father passed away at a young age, and I was very bitter towards God. At the age of 10, I was exposed to pornography, and soon after, I was giving over regularly to the flesh. At the age of 14, I made a profession of faith in Christ. Later, I attended the Bible College of Choice for our church, followed by seminary. I was so deluded, I couldn't see my self-exalting pride, which craved affirmation from others. I pastored a local church for over three decades while continuing to live a double life. I hid my addiction to pornography from everyone, including my wife and family and ministry colleagues. In July of 2021, I made vague and insincere confessions of my sin to my wife and our adult children. I didn't understand repentance or disclosure of sin to others. My life was so out of control, I entered a mental health facility, receiving multiple prescribed drugs for what were only physical symptoms and not the spiritual problem within my heart. I was unwilling to work on my marriage, which ended in divorce. Through the amazing grace and mercy of our wonderful God, he enabled my ex-wife to discover Pure Life Ministries on the internet. 
On February 18th of 2022, I arrived on campus, my life a complete mess, in need of a savior. During the first months of my program, I was apathetic and unresponsive to Jesus. His mercy enabled me to stay here. I wasn't desperate, unwilling to heed my counselor's challenges and rebukes for me to yield and surrender to Jesus. I wasn't seeing how stubbornly resistant I was to the Lord. I wasn't even seeing how I had offended and hurt Jesus. In God's wisdom, my counselor enlisted the God-given resources of the PLM staff and counselors, and I was rebuked by several of them. The Lord graphically showed me a false Jeff who was self-righteous, fearing man, hiding behind a stoic, nice guy facade. He showed me my self-protective pride, which kept me isolated and unwilling to receive his mercy extended through others. I was amazed that I had absolutely no sense of anger towards the staff for their rebukes. They were speaking truth. I came to the place where I understood repentance, crying out to Jesus for his forgiveness. Finally, I was desperate for him and his mercy. Now I could see how I had offended him with my sin. I wanted to extend his mercy to others. Jesus truly became my savior. Not only did I bring him my sin, I brought my decades of shame. The cross became real to me. One night I vividly heard him say to me, will you pursue me? And my answer at that moment and to this day is yes. It was a tremendous blessing to be appointed as a last dad. On a daily basis, I cried out to Jesus for his wisdom, love, patience, and mercy. I realized how unqualified I was to serve in this way and how I had to daily come out of myself, simply abiding in Jesus for all that is necessary to love and care for those who reside in the last. I never would have thought, given my decades of sin, that I would ever have a testimony, let alone opportunities to serve again in leadership. Thank you to my loving Heavenly Father who heard my cry and lifting me out of the slimy pit and setting my feet on a rock to stand. Jesus, you put a new song in my heart. You pursued me for so long while I was so stubbornly resistant to you. Thank you for giving me a testimony for your glory and your honor. All right, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining us on Purity for Life. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.